Welcome to episode 32 of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I am your co-host, The Father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, a.k.a. Matt Rawlings, and I'm joined as always by my trusty co-host. Jackson, the son, and the phrase, this is not a drill, becomes a whole lot more comforting after watching the movie we're talking about today. (laughs) Oh, well, we are a spoiler podcast. We spoil the movies we discuss, so be warned. And this week we are choosing another slasher from the library over at Shudder with the 1982 Roger Corman-produced Slumber Party Massacre. The basketball team is planning a party. A slumber party. The party begins at 8 o'clock. Love it, too. You think I'm getting better? But be on the lookout for an uninvited guest. Please, please. When the pizza arrives, things really start jumping. Some people may have to leave early. But others will hang around and hang around. Eat the dead guy's pizza. I feel better already. Really, I do. But for those who stay, there'll be plenty of surprises. <laughs> and non-stop action. sure no one's getting any sleep the night of the slumber party massacre close your eyes for a second and sleep forever so i chose this because it is women in horror month and this flick believe it or not was written by a woman rita may brown and directed by a woman amy holden jones Yet, I think we can both agree it is clearly also a Roger Corman movie. Yes, yeah, it definitely fulfills his requirement. Uh, you know, two characters must be nude at least. You know, he's got the whole thing worked out. Joe Bob talked about it in length. Uh, but, uh, I mean, she does, both the writer and the director, they do uh, manage to slip some feminist, you know, values into the film somewhere, somehow. So it kind of shines through. Yeah, there's not, uh, I don't think you can accuse this movie of too much toxic masculinity. Yeah, exactly. There's, what? what is there? There's uh, four male characters in the movie, one is a killer, two are random teens, and one is some creepy neighbor. Yeah, and the pizza delivery guy, but he Oh, right, he's not really a character. <laughs> he's a prop. So what are your initial thoughts? Well, first of all, had you seen Slumber Party Massacre before we picked this? No, and in fact, I was not expecting, you know, what I got. I was thinking this will be more along the lines of Nailgun Massacre or something like low-rent, very cheap, um, like an exploitation film, basically. But this is more tasteful, I would say, and very well shot and edited, which is really surprising. Lots of good acting in here, too. But I think the standout feature is the writing, which you can't say about a lot of early 80s slashers. 
but the writing in this movie is really clever. It's really smart. Um, and I think it, it defies the usual tropes and slashers, having the women talk about sports and having them all be athletes. I mean, they can hold their own against this guy, um, especially at the end of the movie, like Valerie and Trish. Um, I mean, it's it's really an interesting choice to have the heroes of the movie be women. And we didn't really see that that, that much. I mean, if anything, women were either... Uh, the killers, like in Friday the 13th, or they were just victims, like in every other slasher. So, kind of an interesting thing. I enjoyed it. I was pleasantly surprised. I was expecting, like, a um, a 3 out of 10, but uh, it did not turn out to be that. <laughs> yeah, I I first saw this way too young, when I was about 12 or 13 on, on VHS. Um, there were two mom and pop video stores near me. We never had uh, in Southern Ohio where I grew up before I went to California. We, we never had a movie gallery, blockbuster, uh, Odyssey. We never had any of that kind of thing. We just had two mom and pop stores and one of them was in range of my bicycle when I was 12 years old. So I'd jump on my Huffy and go there. And there was one, God bless her, one clerk there who would let me rent anything. I don't know what she was thinking, but she would let me rent anything if she was working. And so I saw this when I was about 12 or 13 on VHS. And at the time, I hated it mm -hmm. because I didn't get it. Right. I thought it was just stupid, low-budget flick. And I was into Halloween and Psycho and Jaws, darn it. And what was this thing? But mm -hmm. when I went through the movies of 1982, uh, working through horror movies year by year on Letterboxd, I kind of came to love it and I get it now that it is as much a comedy as a slasher flick right it's kind of a precursor to that whole scream run of films absolutely yeah I mean Rita Mae Brown wrote it as a parody of slasher flicks mm -hmm. but Corman's company wanted it done straight so the director kind of played along but kept the humor and now I love it mm-hmm yeah it was definitely uh, like I said, I was I was thinking it would be tasteless and just kind of boring, your run-of-the-mill slasher. But it has a lot of elements that I think you would you would find more in horror comedies and um, like teen films. I mean, there's a lot of real drama in here, and uh, the the kids in this movie, even though they're played by twenty-somethings, act yeah. like real kids. I mean, they're written like real kids. Um, they're not talking about, like in most slashers, they're just all the time talking about where they're going and, and what they're going to do. And I don't think I want to do college. My my dad says that I should just stay in the kitchen, that kind of thing, which you'll hear in most slashers. Instead, they're talking about sports and about their college careers and that they think their boyfriends are no good, which I think is more accurate to what these, these people will be yes. saying. Yes. Um, so I, I like it. I don't know. Um I, I guess it, it has trouble for me with writing that line between your usual Corman affair and the smart, witty um, slasher in that uh, you can definitely see that the director was kind of um, fighting against these two things because you did have Corman producing the film, so he had a, a, a say in it, but you also had the original script to go off of, which was a parody of the slasher. So you had to fit the Corman stuff in there, like there's a long, drawn-out, three-minute shower scene right. with gratuitous nudity, which it's just... It's, there's not even anything interesting in the shots. It's just literally panning to a butt to look at the butt. There's no, like, additional information gained. Um... But, uh, I mean, it's, 
after that, immediately after that, we have a scene full of uh, like depictions of bullying between uh, girls and how that yeah. can that can harm you know somebody's ego. And it's just, it's really strange, but I think once you are in this world and once you accept that this is how this movie is going to be, you can, you can really like it. You can enjoy yourself. Yeah. And if, if you somehow haven't seen this movie, um, as a horror fan, it's a group of high school girls, basketball team, right? Teammates mm-hmm. who are, yep. they're having a party while one of their parents are, you know, are on a trip. And it just so happens at the same time, serial killer, Russ Thorne. Mm-hmm. Great, great name, by the way. Russ yep. Thorne has escaped from a mental asylum and apparently afterwards robbed Brian Adams of his wardrobe while he was on his way out <laughs> of the Home Depot. So... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's an interesting look he's got going on uh, and an interesting voice. I, at the end, when his voice is revealed, I was not expecting it to be like that. It sounds kind of like Michael Jackson. Yeah, it's 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 strange. It, it's it works somehow, though. Yeah, the guy's wearing, like, perfectly fitting jeans and a yep. jean jacket mm-hmm. with with pretty nice for 1981-82 cowboy boots. I mean, mm-hmm. he he looks like Brian Adams would in, like, a Cuts Like a Knife video from, like, 1982-83. So um, not a mask-wearing guy. You know, typically nope. you get a mask and a, uh, I guess you would call it a, um, a handyman's outfit or something or a gardener's outfit or something mm-hmm. like that. You don't yeah. have that here. Yeah, it's it surprised me that we get to see his face right away. I mean, within the first 10 minutes and the first kill, we see his face. Um which was really surprising to me. I thought they were going to do some kind of fake out with a red herring. I mean, when the creepy neighbor, I don't know, is his name Mr. Content or something like that? Mr. Content. <laughs> uh it, it's something like that though, right? Isn't it? It is, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I thought when I first saw him, oh, creepy neighbor, he's going to be the killer. But then we see some guy, and he's just, like, fully in frame killing people. We see him with the drill, and I was like, oh, okay, so it's actually this guy, which is really strange. I mean, with Friday the 13th, we don't see the killer until, like, the last five minutes, and it's revealed to be Mrs. Voorhees, but, um... This this was a brave route to go on. I mean, when there's no mystery as to who the killer is, you've really got to ride on the characters, the story, and the kills to propel the movie. You can't use that mystery, you know, fake out red herring thing to keep people invested. So I thought that was a brave choice, and I think it pays off. No, I, I kind of like it because it's different, right? I mean, he's not he's not deformed. Um, he looks ordinary. Um, like you said, he has kind of a surprising voice and kind of, you know, the way he pronounces words and everything. It's it's a little yeah. weird and a little funny. Um, yeah, yeah, it's not. There's there are no red herrings, no mystery. This is just a straight up. You got a guy who escaped from a mental asylum and somehow made it to the Gap and Home Depot, and he's on a killing spree, and and that's it. I mean, there's there's nothing else to it, and yet somehow it works. Yep. And and I think the parallels to Halloween can be drawn because we know it's Michael Myers. Uh, we know exactly, you know, what he's going to do. He's escaped from a mental institution. His name is Michael Myers. Uh, he kills people, you know, seemingly because he's just evil. Uh, and that propels the movie. We don't need any mystery as to who's behind the mask. We know it's Michael Myers and he looks like a normal guy when we see him unmasked later in the movie. And in this movie, he's not even masked. So um, the thing that interested me about the killer, about about Mr. Thorne here with the Michael Jackson voice, is that 
it's kind of more frightening to know that he's more of a realistic portrayal of a serial killer. I mean, he's just some random, you know, guy, uh, mid-40s, kind of balding a little bit. And he's just somebody you would pass on the street and not think about it. But when you put it in the context of this movie, I mean, it's terrifying. It's it's scarier to me than some weird slime monster like you would get in some uh, low-rent, like, 80s movie on VHS. Um, it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's kind of more frightening that... Uh, his whole motivation is that he wants to kill. He's he's got this love for killing. It's almost like a a relationship he has with this uh, this act. And uh, I mean, the way that the girls deal with him should really teach him a lesson, which I want to talk about later. But uh, great villain, I think overall. Now, part two really changes that, though. <laughs> okay, so you've seen part two. I have started part two, and I stopped it. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk about it later because it, yeah, it's something else. Um, so let me ask you this because like, you know, we've said Rita Mae Brown wrote this as a parody. Do you find parts of it funny? Oh yeah. I, I think it's funny. I th- the, the funniest things to me are, um, the interactions between Valerie and her sister. I think those are the best written. Um, though I do appreciate um, the whole running joke about who scored uh, the last home run, who scored the last run in this game. <laughs> they're going over this baseball game, and uh, over and over again, uh, they're talking about say, and they're like, "Oh, who? The, I know you got you know that four, but but who's the the other run?" And then at the end of the movie, the coach comes to rescue them, and the first thing she says is, "Thompson got a single in the sixth <laughs> inning, right before she's murdered." I mean, that's like the most important thing. Um, so that, that was really funny. And I think that is, um, that is a good parody of the slasher genre where they'll just fill time with like useless dialogue just to build suspense. You're like, okay, when's the killer coming? And they actually try to make it as, as boring as possible. I mean, she walks into this dark house. There's a body with a, with a curtain draped over and she's talking about sports. Um, but (laughs) There's also this whole this whole thing between Valerie and her sister, like I talked about earlier, um, is is really funny because it's almost like the writer is just you know talking about how she and her sister. I assume she has a sister because it's so it seems so personal. Her mm. and her sister act because it seems like a very realistic relationship. Um, you know, they're they're talking about boys and whatnot, but not in a way where your usual slash would be like, "Oh, Ricky." It's not. It's not like that. It's more like they're disgusting, and uh, kind of annoying sometimes. And we don't really want to go to a party because right now we've got tests to study for and stuff like that. Um, so it's it's really really cleverly written, but I don't know that it 100% comes off like that way all the time on screen because, like I said earlier, Corman's you know got to have his nudity to sell the film. Right. So it, it's it's a clever like teen film one second, and then it's gory and it's got lots of nudity in it another second. Yeah, and what about I mean, speaking about scenes that when I was 12 or 13, I just thought this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen, and then when I Rewatched it in my 40s. I thought this is hysterical. Um, when is it, Jackie? Who's mm-hmm. like, I'm hungry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're all sitting back to back with knives, you know, waiting for the killer to come in, and she's she's ready to go and get some pizza off of the dead delivery boy. She <laughs> eats pizza off his body like a table with blood on the pizza box. Yep. 
yeah, there's blood on the pizza box. It's all smashed. And she says, hey, you got to keep living. And li- what does she say? Eating makes me happy? So she's yes. just going to eat on top yes. of the corpse? Oh, my gosh. And, the and rest by of the, the girl- way, I love Jackie in this. And she's only had like two other credits on IMDb. She's, she yeah. did not have a career. I thought she was great. I know. And she gets just dispatched in the most uh, brutal way possible. Oh, yeah. It's just senseless. Um, I think she should have been a major player because the, her her uh, dialogue is really funny. Um, I think all the girls at, at the slumber party are, are really funny um, because they've got like interesting things to say. You're actually interested in what the characters are talking about. Um, one it's of my not, favorite. It's not the usual cliche ridden crap. No, it, I mean yeah. you don't have like the nerd. Uh, the jock, you know, that kind of thing. They all have very personalized characters that aren't stock. They're dynamic and they're round. Um, so it, it's way more interesting and it, it makes it more harrowing when they die. Um, I mean, one of my favorite interactions in the movie isn't really a comedic uh, comedic scene, but uh, what's her name? The girl who has the, the boyfriend, the John Minor, the, I think his name is. The snob? The, the yeah. one who's a snob? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. You're a snob. Hey, only the best people are. Uh, one yeah. of my favorite lines in the movie. But um, <laughs> she wants to go sneak off with her boyfriend. And uh, she, she goes in and she's like, uh, so we're going to go for beers. And the, all the girls are like, uh-huh. And she's like, no, 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 we'll be back. And they're like, uh-huh. Um, which I think is very realistic of of uh, how people talk. It's just like very, lots of subtlety al- along with the one-liners that we come to expect with flashers. Was she um, Valerie? Uh, no, Valerie is the one with the sister. Valerie is the oh, that's right, that's right. Oh, okay, all right, all right. I um, can't, I can't, I can't keep all of them them straight. But yeah, okay. there there are a lot of names to keep track of, and they they only say them once or twice, usually when they're screaming for them in the dark. So it's kind of kind of hard to figure out who's who. The ones I know are Valerie, who's got the the little sister who's uh, obsessed with Playgirl magazine. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah, that the one and, with Sylvester Stallone on the cover. Yeah. Yeah, and um, that that's pretty much all I could keep track of through the whole movie. Uh, or ja- Jackie is the one we were talking about earlier too. Mm-hmm. But, um, I know that Trish and Valerie are basically our protagonists. Right, and so, and I love the line, you know, where they go over to the pizza delivery guy and they're like, yeah, he's definitely dead. It's like, do you <laughs> yeah. think with both of his eyes yeah. drilled out? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's so cold. He's probably dead. Yeah. Oh, it, it, man. That's, that's one of the, the things where you got to play it to be a slasher. I mean, they, they, they're really smart one second and the other seconds, you know, that the rest of the movie, they're just kind of playing into the tropes of the slasher. They've got to open the door to see if it's their friend when they know it's a killer. So, you know, whatever. You got to play to win. Yeah, I, that's what one of the things I love about this movie is that it doesn't use all of the tropes, but it does play on some of the tropes. And I, I like that, that it doesn't it doesn't lean into it so far that you have every single trope. But at the same time, they have those few recognizable ones there that they're obviously parroting, like when Jackie opens the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, and the whole um, let's not stay where we're safe. Let's go and wander about the house again because I'm hungry. Um, you always are telling, trying to tell characters in the movie when you're watching it, stay where you are, or you have weapons, and you're safe in numbers, but they always got to split up. I, I think it's kind of funny. They send the boys out to get help, and they're like, let's split up, then one of us will survive. That goes great, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. They, they, 
their uh, their plans don't don't always uh, go the best, and I, I think that um, you know that's typical flashers. But it was '82. I mean, this was before we were totally burnt out on flashers, and it right. was still inventing itself as a subgenre. Uh, lots of experimentation in those early days. So, I mean, can you really blame them? Yeah, you had. I mean, it, yeah, it was really varied. I mean, last week we did Maniac from 1980. Um, you know, at some point, I'd love to do Hell Knight from 1981. Uh, you had Madman. You had, but yeah, they're all. You know, they. Yes, you can find a running thread uh, among a lot of them, but some of them are very different. Like we covered Maniac last week. Well, you know, this is a slasher where we're actually spending more time with the killer. This is not a you know voiceless Michael Myers. We're hanging out with this guy, and so. Yeah, it is still kind of in flux, right? It that it hasn't it hasn't gelled to where here's the trope, here it is, here you have it, you know, that's how you play it out. And so yeah, I, I like that about this film. Let me ask you, do you find any part of this film scary or even thrilling or suspenseful? Yeah, I think it's more it's more thrilling than than scary or horrifying. Um the final confrontation between the killer and Trish and Valerie, I think is really intense oh, and, and actually, cool. yeah, it actually got me really into it. But the rest are, are are mostly your standard kills. I think the most masterful kill in the whole movie, though, is the first one with the the repair woman uh, when she's kind of like dragged into the van, and we get this really cool like mix between POVs and like outside the van shots where it's like mm-hmm. cut together really cool. Like it switches from her POV to the killer's POV to outside the van, but it's all cut together really seamlessly. So that that was that was pretty scary. But there are quite a few uh, off-screen kills or very minimally on-screen kills, um, which are kind of disappointing. Yeah, but I you know I. I really give credit where credit is due with Amy Holden Jones as the director. I really think she did the best with what she had. I mean, this was shot for $250,000 mm-hmm. and, you know, in 1981, which not a lot of money at all. It made over 3.6 million. Yeah. So this was a huge hit, which explains why it got two sequels. Yeah. And, you know, but she did a fantastic job with what she had. And, and I read that the way she even got the gig, was she read the script and she spent a thousand dollars of her and her husband's own money and her husband was a cinematographer and they shot a few scenes from the movie and showed it to roger corbin and said this is what i'll do and he's like okay fine you got the job i'll, I'll finance it mm-hmm. and she couldn't even afford a crane so like there's an overhead shot in the gym that's from like a farming cherry picking machine that she just really forgot. Yeah, that she's just hanging off of her and her husband are shooting. That's fantastic. I love that kind of inventive filmmaking. Do what you have to do to get the shot. I agree with you. It's it's it, it's creative. Mm-hmm. You know, you may go, yeah, we wanted some more gore, but I think you know her trying to, especially after the uproar with the MPAA after Friday Thirteenth. Yeah. When this was filming, that yeah, she thought, I, I just can't do that, and so and, and deliver an R-rated movie, and so I. But I thought she balanced it really well. 
Mm-hmm. And it is. I don't. I don't want to give the wrong the wrong impression. I did like the kills in the movie. I thought they were really creative for the most part. Uh, just there are a few notable examples where I'm sure due to budget and um, the ratings board, they had to cut away completely. One of the best sequences in the film is when uh, one of the girls in the basketball team has to go back to her locker to get something she forgot, and she's chased by the killer. Yeah, it's um, Brink Stevens, future scream queen Brink mm-hmm. Stevens. Yeah. And her first speaking role in this movie, I think. I think you're right, yeah. Um, so she's running from the killer, and she's been stabbed in the arm with his drill, and she's got to run away from him. And she's hiding, and she knows that her blood trail will, you know, alert him to her presence. So he, she's trying to, to wipe it up, but she doesn't get to it in time. But it's a great scene, but then it kind of it cuts away from that Um from what he's going to do it just cuts to that i think what you're talking about that that shot of the gym from high up um so i mean it's it's kind of disappointing we didn't get to see because the the makeup people do a really good job on this movie that guy missing the eyes it's really cool i i like the look of of the of the bodies after they have the the drill through their head they've got like brain exposed and stuff it's really gnarly yeah Um, it is so they did they did a good job with that but i'm sure you know the budget just got to come to an end at some point. Yeah. So this has gone from terrible mm-hmm. to, in my mind, terrible to it's so bad it's good to, no, I just straight up love this movie. Yeah. I, I, I just love it. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew, like, I'd done a little bit of research um, right before viewing it, and I knew it wasn't conventional. I knew to look for something that wasn't necessarily uh, you know, right in front of me to kind of try to analyze it. But th- I think there is a lot to catch on rewatch. Maybe now that I know it's got a feminist uh, worldview behind it and it's, you know, the, the reason it's, it's got some ex- exploitation elements in it is because of Roger Corman. If I can just analyze it again and uh, look at it through a critical eye, I think there's more I can glean from it. But on first watch, still very enjoyable and I would recommend it. Absolutely. And, I, you know, going through this, I, I, uh, there's a number of things I want to say here. One about Amy Holden Jones. Mm-hmm. When I was doing some research on my own, I love the fact that Amy Holden Jones, when she was confronted about this movie, there were a number of feminist groups that criticized her, you know, for making an exploitation movie. Mm-hmm. And, I love it that she just shot right back and she said, oh, okay, so Martin Scorsese can do it, Brian De Palma can do it, and critics stand up and applaud. But if a woman does it, she's a Benedict Arnold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that's the way you break into the industry. I mean, what else are you going to do? If Roger Corman gives you a budget to make a movie that you, you want to shoot, what are you going to do? Just say, no, I am. I object to nudity in movies. I object to violence against women. I will not make this movie. You got to break into the industry somehow. This was her, you know, she saw the script and she jumped on it. It was her vision. So um, I admire her for that. I don't give her one... Uh, any crap for that. I mean, Martin Scorsese did the exact same thing with movies like Taxi Driver um, with violence against women and, and depictions of prostitution, and that's praised as uh, conscious and... and um, visionary. Like, yeah, visionary and, and defined the culture. Oh my gosh, Brian De Palma's made an entire career out of it. Exactly, I mean, yep. 
and and I think that 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 definitely does need to change where women are held to a different standard in directing. They're expected to make a certain kind of movie, uh, this movie where women do nothing wrong and uh, they're just superheroes. Uh, when in reality, true power from a movie uh, which depicts feminism comes from their flaws in, in addition to their, their strengths. I mean, you got to depict women realistically if you want to empower them. People are people and all people have flaws. And yep. sorry, that's just the way it is. And yeah, I but I just, I, you know, she's had such, uh, you know, she's not backed down from it. I love it. She went on to have a great career and Roger Corbin had launched a number of great careers. Joe Dante, James Cameron, though he later became the Antichrist. You know, he's, he's launched a number of great careers. And Amy Holden Jones, you know, she went on to, as a, as a great screenwriter, she wrote Mystic Pizza. She wrote the remake of The Getaway. She's, you know, she's, you know, she's done some great, great stuff. She's working to this day, and this was her breakthrough. Good on her, right? I'm, right. I'm, Absolutely, and she was she was a film editor, if I'm not mistaken, right before yes. she was a director. Yes. So I mean, this was her chance to leap jobs. I mean, she was a film editor. This is her job to become a director to break into the industry in that way. I wouldn't turn it down if I was her. So I respect her for that. I respect her too. And so good, you know, Amy Holden Jones, we're fans now. All right, one thing I am critical about, and I think you'll be critical about as well. Maybe. Mm-hmm. What about the score? Uh, okay. I didn't really notice it a lot. I didn't think it was spectacular, <laughs> but there is one part I did like, and I think that, I don't, I don't know if it was accidental or not, but the scene where the boys run out and they split up to go try to get help, there is one cool moment where they both go out the doors and, and the synth hits like that, and then after that it just kind of fades into weird, you know, um like synth wave music there is an overuse of score in some scenes uh i think there, there's one scene where two people are talking and one responds to the other and there's like a strike like a suspense strike even though it's not a suspenseful scene at all um but that might that very well might be a parody of slashers in that every single time you see a shadow move it's like blah i mean even movies like halloween are guilty of this anytime michael myers is on screen you know those do 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 um it's just relentless but the way the reason i think halloween succeeds is because it's got a memorable score every time you hear it you know you're 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 uh, bobbing your head to it because it's it's foreboding but it's catchy and i don't remember a single track off the soundtrack well, let me let me bring this up. Um, I think the difference, even though probably budget-wise, it mm-hmm. was um, Halloween had a little bit bigger budget than um, Slumber Party Massacre with inflation. Sure. That being said, um, this score was done on a Casio keyboard. Oh, I have one of those. Yeah, they're not the best. Uh, yeah, they were sold in '81 and '82 in Sears. Um, mm-hmm. The keyboard to have at the time was a Yamaha DX7, not a Casio. Casio was known for basically learning how to play, not recording stuff, and that's what it was done on, and that's what I could notice. was. Yeah, yeah. I've got a Casio, and the best thing about it is that it's portable. Uh, the tone <laughs> for a piano, they call it a grand piano, uh, it sounds kind of like a hammer hitting a piano key, so that's all I can say mm-hmm. about that. Exactly. So I want to talk more about the cast. Um, I'm sure I'm butchering his name and I do own the Shout Factory Blu-ray of this but I wasn't able to watch all the extras this mm-hmm. week 
I'm sorry, folks, I got a full time job and I'm trying to do two degrees at the same time. So I apologize. But um, the Shout Factory Blu-ray has some really cool stuff on it. I did get to watch the 4K scan. It looks fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a making of Slumber Party Massacre on here. And there's a commentary, which I really wanted to watch, but I didn't get a chance to, with the director and the guy who plays Russ Thorne. Cool. And I really wanted to watch that audio commentary, but I just didn't get a chance. Michael to. Jackson voice all the way through the movie. Uh, that you're telling me. I, I can't, but I, I'm sure I'm butchering his name. I think it's Michael Vieja. Mm hmm. This is V I L L E L L A. So I think it may be have, you know, a Vieja, maybe a, a, um, a, a Hispanic etymology. Mm -hmm. But he went all method on this. As a killer? He studied serial killers, and he refused to have anything to do with the rest of the cast. Mm. And that was his approach. So, like, Pennywise with both cars going. Yeah, and so, do you think it worked? Do you think he needed to do that for this movie? That's kind no, of a parody, or... I mean, not really, because he has uh, only three or four speaking lines, and... um. But but there is a look of intensity on his face. And like I said, it is really disturbing that he does just fit the mold of a normal serial killer. He's not supernatural in any way. He's just some regular guy who's really messed up in the head. Um, so I don't know that he needed to go method, but he certainly does deliver uh, a, a creepy performance. He's a foreboding presence in this movie. Uh, he's got a, he's got a real intensity in his eyes. I think that's the thing I noticed the most about him, especially in that scene where um, Trish and uh, I don't remember who the other girl who's alive at that point is, but they're holed up in a room, uh, and he's approaching them from behind, and he's got the drill outstretched, and he's got fire in his eyes. I mean, it's really creepy, uh, but I don't know that he needed to go method. I respect him for it. I respect any actor that goes method because it's not fun. Um, you no, gotta, you, you gotta sacrifice a lot to, to work with people while going method. So, um, I, it, I respect it works, him, but I, yeah, it sure. works both ways because on the one hand you, you can see where it's given great performances, but on the other hand, you know, having worked in Hollywood, I was on the set of the doors, mm -hmm. the Oliver Stone movie yep. where Val Kilmer played Jim Morrison. And he, he was Jim Morrison. He, you had to call him Jim. Yes, he. you had to call him Jim. He insisted on it. And most of the cast thought he was a D-bag. Um, but at the same time, I can't say he didn't give a, a good performance. Mm -hmm. When I finally watched the movie, I have to say, you know, I thought it was really good. But um, <clears throat> so anyway, yeah, that's it, 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 Michael Vieja, Vieja, if I'm saying that correctly, and if I'm not, I, I apologize because, sir, if you're li if you ever listen to this, I do respect your performance. I think you gave a memorable one. I bought the Scream Factory <laughs> action figure of Russ Thorne. I have it in my office. You what know, a trophy! One of these days, when I go to be with the Lord, it will be yours, son. So, but Looking it's forward it's, to it. Oh, what, come on. You know who you actually are, you know, along with the uh, along with my I don't know. Night of the Creeps. Would I rather have my dad or Russ Thorne action figure? I think I'll go with you. <laughs> well, I I appreciate that. That's sweet. But, you know, hey, I'm leaving you Russ Thorne and I'm leaving you Tom Atkins and I'm leaving you one of the werewolves from the Howling. So, hey, mm -hmm. you know, let's 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 and my, you know, my VHS and my, you know, um, 
uh, region-free Blu-ray player. So, I don't think anyway. you need to contribute to my habit. I got a bad <laughs> habit of collecting. It's not a bad habit, buddy. It's 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 not a bad habit. It will be when I'm on TLC. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, if you make it as a director, you won't be a hoarder. You'll just be like Greg Amortis, and you'll just yeah. have a. You'll I'll have be like a Quentin couple. Tarantino, who's got a, a full closet that's devoted to old prints. Yeah, and so does Rob Zombie, by the way. So if you go on and you watch his Cribs episode, he's got an entire walk-in closet dedicated to nothing but horror movie DVDs and VHSs. So, half a life. There you go. There you go. So, um, one of the scenes I want to talk about: paging Doctor Freud. The scene where they cut his drill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I think that's hysterical. Is it made of cheese? She takes one swing at that thing and it just comes right off. Um, I know, but come on. It's so funny. It is It is really funny. And it, it kind of does um, parody how we see in, in slashers. They'll take a swing at somebody's arm and it'll just fly off. Um, and, right. and we actually do see that w- with how uh, Valerie, you know, cuts off the killer's arm. But... Right. Um, it is and somehow he just pops out of the pool after that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. He pulls himself up with his one hand and his stump. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm going to get well, right he, out of this. Well, he's in searing pain and bleeding to death. Yeah. That's that's true. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, that is pretty funny how she just, you know, cut cut it right off. It just comes right off. Um, let's hope that was a detachable drill because if, if it just comes off that easy, you're going to be drilling something that thing's going to fly off and come in your face. Yeah, oh, man. I think it's just funny. It's obviously Freudian. Obviously, they're saying that, again, going back to the feminist comment on this, that the drill is kind of the ultimate kind of male phallic symbol, and that once it's cut, you know, the look on his face mm-hmm. yeah. you know, is really funny. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, he gets brutalized. I mean, hand cut off, his stomach is slashed open, and then he falls into the pool. Um which I, I kind of have a, a, a problem with. He, he's cut open like a pig and his arm's cut off and he's floating in the pool for a good 45 seconds and then he's just up and out of it. Well, uh, yeah, but, but again, whatever. He's impaled right after that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was thinking, it's kind of like Jason Voorhees. I mean, he's he's right. he's put down and then he comes back up and then he's put down again. Uh, but really, the beating he takes could take out Jason Voorhees. I mean, that, that is pretty serious. Trish and Valerie did not hold back. Um, so I appreciate that. Let's, let's make sure that he doesn't come back in the sequel. Although I think I probably would have preferred it to whatever guy we got in the second one with a guitar or whatever. Oh, so weird. All right. Let's talk about the sequels. I, and I have to say, I remember nothing about the third one. I mm-hmm. al- almost nothing. Um, I've yeah, seen I, it, I've but I just don't it. remember it. The second one, I remember the killer because he was dressed like Andrew Dice Clay and it was weird and he's singing 50 songs and it's just, mm-hmm. it's it's weird. The thing I remember about that is it starred Crystal Bernard mm-hmm. who went on to star in the TV show Wings and I knew Crystal Bernard when I lived in Hollywood because she was at the time um, she hadn't done Wings yet for NBC in the 90s. Um, she had done Slumber Party Massacre 2 and but she was friends with your uncle brian your uncle brian actually produced her demo tapes that got her a record contract oh wow and so i knew her that way and she's a sweetheart and really nice person i do remember her i almost i don't remember much else other than i think it's a dream 
Mm-hmm. I'm not yeah, sure. I just was, can't remember. It's been a long time. I would time. assume so. I mean, if he's if it's that's weird. the tone of the movie, I would assume it's one of those. It's all a dream sequence, like kind of thing. Yeah, it's weird, but it, it, it's worth a watch. I'm not sure I liked it as much, but I think it is worth watching. Um, here's what I can't believe. I recommended this last week for a couple reasons. One, because it's Women in Horror Month. Mm-hmm. Two, because it's a slasher, and we've done a lot of art house highbrow horror movies. And so I wanted to do something different. But what I can't believe when I looked into this, Joe Bob Briggs has not covered this on the last drive-in. How mm-hmm. is that possible? This is tailor-made for him. I know, exactly. He loves his Corman flicks, and this one's got lots of nudity for him to count up on the on the uh, drive-in totals. So I don't, know, I don't know why he hasn't done it yet. I'm sure it's it's coming in the future. It's right? got He'll drill foo. Yep, drill foo, <laughs> uh, machete foo, knife foo. Uh, baseball bat foo, I'm sure he would say. Um, and uh, hands roll. He loves that when hands roll. So he does. Um, so I'm looking for. I'm. I, he'll do it in the future. He'll do some kind of special so. slashers. So um, we got that to look forward to. I, I I hope so. I hope so. So what else do you want to talk about with slumber part with the slumber party massacre? Uh, I don't really have that much more to talk about. Maybe just that. Um, I appreciate how it's not preachy. I, I like I respected the female characters, though I, I didn't feel like the director was like, look at how amazing these people are, um, which is something we talked about earlier. But also, this is a kind of a not like a nothing comment. But doesn't Valerie's little sister remind you of Jamie Lee Cur- Curtis? Like that, yes, that a little bit. That, yes. I was thinking, does, yeah. like, who does she remind me of? And it's, it's Jamie Lee Curtis. I guess they were like, work for Halloween. Let's just try to get that in. <laughs> Um, and I think she's great. She's she's like in a, the character in a lot of teen movies that's always pulling pranks on people. She's like Shelley in Friday the 13th Part 3 because um, she's trying to scare her sister the entire movie, and then uh, you don't know if it's her trying to scare Valerie or the killer, so that's kind of a cool um, feature. I don't have a lot more to say about this thing. I'm ready to rate this because I feel like if we All talk right. about this anymore, people are gonna are, are gonna think that this is our favorite movies. And though though <laughs> it is good, I would not introduce somebody to horror through this movie because they're gonna think we're crazy. Well, all right, we're gonna talk about that here in a second. What would you do? So, what would you rate Slumber Party Massacre and recommend? I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10, and I'm going to say stream it on Shutter because it's there uh, right now. Who I I I would say stream this one and maybe start the second one but i stopped it so i don't know how far you'll get into it well believe it or not i also give it a 7.5 out of 10 Mm -hmm. i own it but i definitely recommend streaming it on shutter first give it a stream first and if you love it buy the screen factory blu-ray but but i agree stream it first it's a 7.5 out of 10 for me Cool. Yeah, it's it's it's. I would put it higher, uh, but it's it's kind of hard to recommend to people who are new to horror because they're gonna think that's what it is. They're may they maybe not. They won't pick up on the fact that it's parodying tropes. They'll just think, oh, these guys are just creeping on these chicks. They're just looking at them through the window, and that's how horror movies are. Right. But you gotta understand, you know, that's a trope that they're parodying. Uh, so seven point five for me as well. Stream it. You know, have fun. Absolutely, and so. We are launching a Patreon account soon. Um, We will have special shows only for Patreon supporters. And you just gave me an idea, which is, how would you introduce someone to horror? What would you, 
if someone knew nothing about horror, if an alien from outer space arrived <laughs> on Earth and said, you know, hey, Jackson, what is metal and what is horror? What mm -hmm. would you play them and what would you show them? And That's so, an awesome topic episode. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to do some of those because that, that, that'll be useful. Not only interesting, but useful. I agree. So, and so we will be launching a Patreon account. Uh, we're only asking for like $2.50 a month. You will get special episodes for Patreon supporters. You will also get to make recommendations for our viewing. We will take those mm -hmm. from you. And all the proceeds will go to pay for our software to do this. And the rest of it will all go to putting Jackson through film school to make horror movies. Darn it. So Help me. I don't know how to use a camera. <laughs> yes, you do. So that... Oh, but so it's it will all go toward that. It's either going to supporting a future for a uh, horror filmmaker or it's going towards just paying for to keep the lights on this podcast. I'm not making a dime off of it. So but we will be asking that in the next month. And for that, like we said, you will have the chance to recommend films, maybe be on the podcast and you will also have special episodes. We'll do one like once a month or something where it'll just be for you guys, only Patreon supporters. Maybe it's how do you introduce people to horror? Maybe it's, you know, we'll have different things on there. What are our favorite kills? What are our favorite, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, whatever. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be doing top 10 lists and stuff and, and reviews, especially for Patreon. And I'm also looking forward to doing some of those topics you're talking about. I mean, like location scouting or, or visiting famous movie filming locations stuff mm -hmm. like that we've talked about that for a while but i think that'll be interesting to, to and also to hear some of your hollywood stories i mean obviously you've got a lot of them so if people want to hear about those we'll have a patreon episode dedicated to that well i i can't talk about meeting brad dorf at some point <laughs> oh so. that'll be great yeah so so there you go all right so where can they catch you on social media buddy on Twitter, I'm at Kane underscore Hero 12. That's K-A-I-N-E underscore Hero 12. On Letterboxd, I'm at Kane Hero. And I've also got a YouTube channel, which you can find in my bio and my profiles on both those websites. Yes, and you do a great, great job on those. Um, I'm on Twitter at Letterboxd. And on um, uh, as Twitter and Letterboxd, as Pastor Matt R. I'm also on Instagram as Pastor Matt R. But quite frankly, you're not going to be interested in that. So... You can find us at fatherandsonwatchhorror.com and also on Twitter and Instagram. We have a closed uh, group on Facebook that you can join. Just send me a friend request or send a request to join the group, and I'll, I'll let me know that you listen to the podcast, and we'll go from there. So what are we covering next week, buddy? Your oh, pick. Well, it's interesting because... You mentioned a movie earlier in the podcast that you said you wanted to cover in the future, and I had actually written that down in my notes, and that's 1981's Hell Night. Oh, um, I saw this it on is Shutter. why you're my best friend yeah. in the world, darling. I saw it on Shudder. I saw that it starred Linda Blair, and I was like, I haven't seen this before. Let's cover oh. it. So that's what I wrote down. I'm excited to watch it. Um, anything with Linda Blair is interesting yes. to me. Yes. So, Hell Knight next week, we're going to go in-depth on that. Um, so, that'll be interesting, hearing my first thoughts on, on, on the film. I don't know what to expect. I know that it'll be like hell, and it'll be at night. So, I'm looking forward to it. You're going to love it, because Peter Barton from Friday 13th Part 4 is also in that. Perfect. You know, more the merrier. 
Absolutely. So it's, yeah, the first slasher I ever saw, the first unedited slasher I ever saw as a kid was Halloween. I, I assume that you, you rented it from the video store with that one. No, clip. I actually saw it at like two o'clock in the morning on HBO while stay, staying really? over at a friend's house. Yeah. And you would have been what? You would have been 10, uh, 10 when you 10 saw it? Old. About 10. And yeah. You probably weren't prepped for what you were about to see. No, it, now it's not. It's not a Corman movie. I'll just warn people: there's no nudity or anything like that. But I still say it is a fun, fun slasher, and we cover it next week. A very famous actor worked on the film as a grip, and so we'll be covering that. And two very influential horror producers and directors also worked on this film so i've basically unknowingly selected uh the biggest melting pot in horror yes you have sweet well, i'm yes. looking forward to it so we will cover that next week hey look guys we appreciate you listening we would appreciate you if you would subscribe and rate and review our podcast we would definitely appreciate a five-star review over on itunes and so folks until next week next week hell night from 1981 i did not know he had picked that until just a second ago you have no idea how happy <laughs> great mind think alike so and it's on shutter so if you've got shutter what you should have go over there and check it out so say goodbye to the good people buddy goodbye and remember to go easy on that maui wowie <laughs> all right mr content thank you for that <laughs> Remember, folks, thanks you for listening, but remember the family that watches horror movies together stays together. See you next time.